0: hello out there i'm kira klingenberg and i'm kira lindenberg and you're listening to everything is interesting on x-ray radio
1: we're here in studio with our friend
0: david Zimelis to talk science and have some fun hi kiras hey, hey. what's up <laughs> so it's a new year The time to move forward into new beginnings. So what better time to talk about the beginning of all life on Earth? Heck yes.
1: Mm -hmm. On today's show, we're going to take a look at how the first cells came to exist, why little creatures called archaea may be who we have to thank for our multicellular bodies, and how giant viruses are giving us clues as to what the very first form of life
0: on Earth may have been. I have my mom to thank for my multicellular body. Anyway... Uh (laughs) Let's start. (laughs) (laughs) I just made a my mom joke. So let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. 4.5 4.5 billion years ago, the infant Earth is barren and being battered by asteroids hurtling in from space. Look at you. These yeah. constant cosmic collisions melt huge amounts of the Earth's crust and upper mantle <laughs> covering the surface of the planet with their lava. <laughs> How much are we paying you guys for these sound effects? They're so good. That's what lava sounds like.
2: <laughs> it does. It sounded t- I Like thought,
0: a fish tank.
1: I
2: thought there was a volcano right yeah, here in yep, the studio. Yep,
1: yep, I yep. Brought brought
2: totally. Well, with all that lava and stuff, it sounds pretty hellish and not really a good place for life to begin
1: right yeah no no, not really but by earth's 750 millionth birthday the planet had something of an atmosphere it was thought to consist of a mix of gases
0: primarily carbon
1: dioxide and nitrogen
0: it's very possible that maybe probable that there was water also both on the surface as liquid and in the atmosphere as water vapor
1: but there was no life not yet All these molecular compounds were what we call inorganic, meaning they are made
0: from non-living material. In the 1950s, American chemist Stanley Miller performed a groundbreaking experiment that successfully turned inorganic material into organic material. Ta-da!
1: Miller demonstrated that energy in the form of electrical sparks discharged into a mixture of the inorganic compounds thought to have been present on early Earth resulted in chemical reactions that produce a variety of organic molecules. Which are the building blocks necessary for life as we know it?
2: But how would I know an organic molecule if it came up and slapped me in the face, for example?
1: They do all the time. They do. <laughs> that's
0: actually true. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, as far as molecules go, if you're they're small, pretty, pretty big. Yeah. yeah, I don't think you would feel one slapping you in the face because they're pretty small. But like compared to other molecules, I'm just pretty, really sensitive. They're pretty big. That's all. <laughs> Me. Anyway, they're really big and they're really complex. That's how you'd know them.
1: Okay. And organic molecules all have backbones that are made of long chains of carbon atoms. Uh, nitrogen, oxygen, and other elements then attach to these carbons in various ways, forming things like proteins, fats, sugars, and the all important nucleic acids.
2: Aren't nucleic acids what make up our genetic material?
0: Very good. They sure are, David. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> yes. And they're, they're also special because <sighs> they, they're the only molecules capable of directing their own self replication. They can reproduce, which is one of the major criterion in defining life. Nucleic acids are in every cell in every
1: living creature. They're what make up those incredibly important mega-molecules, deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA for short, and its lesser-known cousin, ribonucleic
0: acid, or RNA for short. DNA carries all the instructions on how to build an organism, and RNA mostly just exists to help copy DNA. But. But. It's widely believed among biologists that RNA actually showed up on Earth first.
2: Wait a minute. How could RNA show up first? Doesn't DNA hold all the instructions on how to make RNA? I mean, it sounds like a chicken and egg thing to me.
1: Good question. Here's the thing. It turns out that RNA on its own is actually self-replicating. It doesn't necessarily
0: need the DNA. It doesn't need anybody.
2: Well, that's cool, but it makes me wonder why does it want to replicate
0: Yeah, makes me wonder that too. The purely scientific answer is that the shape of the RNA molecule is exactly what it needs to be for attracting more atoms in just such a way that those atoms will lump together and make another strand of RNA. But when it comes to what purpose that that
1: functionality serves for the RNA, we don't really know. I mean, we can describe how it goes about replicating itself, but we don't know why reproduction and replication would have come about for the RNA in the first place.
0: Yeah, the importance of reproduction seems intuitive to like us humans sitting here now because like we're creatures who have evolved to survive and we exist to replicate and to assure the survival of our species and like we can't imagine doing anything else.
1: But the motivation for the organic molecules of old to replicate, well that's much more difficult to talk about and describe. I mean, was it just down to random chance?
2: You know that that random chance sort of reminds me of the infinite monkey theorem.
1: Oh, what's that? It sounds fun.
2: Oh well, it, it kind of <laughs> is actually. Monkey
1: sounds so it fun. It sounds great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the theory that monkeys hitting keys on a keyboard at random uh, for, an, let's say, an infinite amount of time would almost surely type a given text. Like they could end up with the complete works of William Shakespeare maybe. Or like it, War and Peace. Or War and Peace. Um, in other words, the chances that RNA showed up in the exact shape that it could self-replicate are so infinitesimally tiny that who would think it would really happen?
0: But the, it's still possible that it could happen. Yes. Mm. it did. I mean, RNA right. showed up. Here we are. <laughs> it started <laughs> replicating itself, but th- I, maybe the fact that it was random is the thing that's, you know... Up for debate. Yeah. And like, okay, look. Personally, I... Think that there is a life force, for b- lack of a better word, that inspires living organisms to survive and to adapt and reproduce. I don't think it's random chance. I think that life wanted to exist and this is how it created itself. But, like, I get that that's not science, but I just can't help saying it.
2: Well, maybe it's like a random life force. What do you mean? Well, okay, so you're saying it's random. Kara. On my right is saying,
1: <laughs> right, hand Kira. Say,
2: right hand Kira is saying that it's random. Left hand Kira is saying it's a life force. So maybe yeah. put them together.
1: Oh yeah, and
2: you have a random life force that's both.
1: Right. So like the life force came about, but randomly.
2: Yes, yeah. absolutely.
1: I think I am more inclined to think that everything comes about from the chaos of randomness. But I
0: like, I like that. That's a good I, compromise. I'm, I'm,
2: my wife says I should have been in politics because I'm so, you know, I'm always <laughs> trying to find the middle path. So, maybe that's yeah. what
0: it is. I don't have any retort for you, but I would vote for you. Okay, so, yeah. And I'm glad that you're sitting in between us. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's Very good. Moderator
1: between
2: Keep you guys apart. You know. yeah. Neutral corners, please. We're
1: going to a fist fight over. Science always brings us back together. True.
2: Oh,
0: oh adorable and true. But we digress. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. We were doing a show. I forgot. Yeah. Okay. So, let's find out how RNA becomes cells.
2: Okay, let's.
0: So, out there, exposed to the crazy environment of early Earth, the
1: free floating RNA would likely be reacting constantly with other molecules around it, you know, undergoing chemical changes that would either destroy the RNA or render it unrecognizable.
0: To truly reproduce itself, RNA needed to be isolated from this outside influence. Enter the phospholipids Yay. molecules with the power to protect. They are
1: the fat molecules that make up the protective membranes around present day cells.
0: It's presumed that the very first cell started out as a single strand of RNA that had become completely enveloped in a layer of phospholipids. Phospholipids are ideal membranes for a cell because each phospholipid molecule has one side that is attracted to water and one side that repels water. So when placed in water, the phospholipids flip, so their water-repelling sides come together to stay away from the water. And this creates a double layer that keeps all the stuff on the outside of the cell outside the cell and all the stuff on the inside of the cell inside the cell.
2: Ah, so that would form a stable barrier that separates the interior of this primitive cell from its external environment.
1: Yes, yes. And the somewhat permeable layer of phospholipids would have kept RNA safe and sound, allowing it to be preserved, so that when the RNA replicated, then the new molecule would be as close to an exact copy as possible. So
0: replication of life as we now understand it, that, you know, offspring look just like their parents, had now begun.
2: Okay, so I'm curious again, how did we get from these first primitive single-celled life forms to the diverse collection of complex creatures that exist on Earth today?
1: Well, to answer that, or at least try and answer that, we're going to have to investigate the differences between the different types of cells and the different types of life, and then take a quick trip to
0: the bottom of the ocean. And through several billion years. So yes, <laughs> yes, You guys got your helmets. <laughs> okay, so up until a few decades ago, biologists divided life into just two categories called domains. And this division was based strictly on cell complexity. Single-celled organisms were dubbed the prokaryotes. We humans, along
1: with all other animals, plants, and fungi, have cells that are much more complex. And we are collectively known as
0: the eukaryotes. Prokaryotic cells are pretty simple. The genetic material, plus some molecules necessary for synthesizing proteins, float around in some cytoplasm, Mm -hmm. and it's all encapsulated by a cell wall.
1: Happy little cell. (laughs) But a (laughs) eukaryotic cell, it keeps all of its DNA inside a separate protected compartment called the nucleus. The presence of the nucleus is what
0: distinguishes the eukaryotes from the prokaryotes. Eukaryotic cells are also a lot bigger, sometimes 10 times the size of the prokaryotic cells, and they house a myriad of other components called organelles that prokaryotic cells lack.
1: But prokaryotes are also evolutionarily much older than eukaryotes, having emerged over a billion years before the very first eukaryotic cell, and they still dominate the Earth to this day.
0: The most well-known prokaryotes are probably the bacteria, single-celled organisms that live in virtually all environments on Earth. They are unfathomably diverse and incredibly resilient. And they help support all other life by doing things like keeping the soil fertile, providing plants with essential nutrients, and helping dead matter decay.
2: So you're saying that without bacteria, all other life would not be possible?
0: Yeah, I suppose you could say that. And in fact, all complex life may have begun with bacteria. Back in the 1960s, biologist Lynn Margulis proposed that one of the most important organelles in our eukaryotic cells, the mitochondria, was once actually an independent bacteria swallowed by some other host cell, and then it got integrated into its body. The mitochondria, which produces
1: all of the cell's energy, is really curious because it contains its very own set of genes, which are separate from the cell's genes. So if Margulis's theory was correct, this unique set of genes would be the remnants of that long-ago swallowed bacteria.
0: And Margulis's theory was confirmed via experiment in 1978 by Robert Schwartz and Margaret Dayhoff. Indeed, somewhere along the line, a single host cell engulfed a bacterium, developed a symbiotic relationship, and took the first step on the way towards eukaryotic intricacy. But there was still the question of who that host
1: cell was. It mystery. seemed that it had to be another prokaryote, likely another
0: bacteria, since they were thought to be the only things around at that point. In 1977, American microbiologist Carl Wos made a discovery that changed everything everything here realized that there were not two but three types of life
2: three is this where we talk about aliens
0: (laughs) (laughs) we have another hour maybe oh i
1: wish (laughs) i wish we could but no no according to a 2016 article on bbc earth Woese spent 16 years examining dna sequences he identified a gene shared by all living things and hypothesized that species carrying more similar versions of that gene would be more closely related makes sense right so he then began grouping
0: organisms together into a great genetic family tree. It's so funny because that seems so intuitive to me, but I forget that like somebody had to come up with that theory right. once. Like if you yeah. have genes that are similar to somebody else's, you're more closely related. Hindsight, twenty twenty. This is so yeah. wacky. Yes. Anyway, when most finished this process, he had discovered that the single celled prokaryotes were actually made up of two genetically distinct groups. The bacteria and another form of single celled organisms that looked a lot like bacteria but were Far more complex than their RNA, and they were chemically and metabolically very different. So Woese dubbed these creatures the Archaea.
2: I've heard of Archaea. Those are the extremophiles, right? The little guys that live in Earth's super hostile habitats. They're inside hot springs under extreme pressure at the bottom of the deepest ocean trenches and inside Arctic ice. Those are the guys, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Archaea. Some of my favorite creatures. We'll do a whole show on them once. Extremophiles are so rad. So cool. But because Wo discovered this third type of life, the archaea, all of a sudden it wasn't so clear which type of cell had first swallowed that mitochondria and become our eukaryotic ancestor. Was it a bacterium? Wasn't an archaea.
0: Dun, dun, dun. Uh-oh. Mystery. The plot thickens. <laughs> so, by 2010, researchers were discovering quite a lot of similarities between the genetic sequences of these weird archaea and us eukaryotes. Far more than the similarities between our DNA and bacteria DNA. So, was well, saying something. So opinion swung heavily in favor of the idea that it was actually these archaea and not another bacteria that gave rise to the first eukaryote.
2: I like that in science things aren't static. There's always new evidence to consider.
0: I love that too. Yeah. We're always disproving ourselves. Yeah. If, if you're honestly if your opinion isn't changing, then you're not a very good scientist. Right. Yeah, it's true.
1: I like that. <laughs> it's
0: quite a judgment I just I made like there. That. You're a terrible I'm,
1: scientist. I'm good
2: with it. <laughs> I'm good.
1: There was a startling discovery in two thousand fifteen which added more evidence to this theory that archaea were our beginnings. Microbiologist Tice Etema and his team stumbled upon the genetic traces of a very interesting
0: archaeon living in the mid-Atlantic Ocean, 2,300 meters below the surface. They published their findings in the journal Nature and dubbed the microbe Loki archaeota or Loki for short. This discovery may be groundbreaking because Loki is the closest known living relative
1: to us eukaryotes. Well, living is a strong word. No one, even Edema's team, has seen or studied an intact living Loki cell. The only thing they have to go off of is fragments of its DNA. But within those fragments, they found 100 genes related
0: specifically to the eukaryotes. And it gets better. Not only did Loki help to strengthen the evidence that an archaeon was the host cell that swallowed the mitochondria, it turns out Loki might even be that very host cell. According to a BBC article published in
1: 2016, Loki carries a gene that would make it the perfect host cell to engulf the bacterium that would eventually become our cell's mitochondria. This gene codes for proteins called small
0: GTP aces, which are important for the shape and movement of cells. In a eukaryotic cell, GTP aces control the internal skeleton of the cell, maintaining their shape. And they also regulate the sets of proteins that allow the cell's membrane to bend. So if Loki has the GTP ace gene, it's likely that it also has an internal
1: skeleton and a flexible outer membrane that would allow it to engulf a bacterium. And that would make it a suitable host cell, or at least the closest thing we know to one.
0: Unfortunately, because only Loki's genes and not its living body have been found, we've never seen these GTPases in action, so we don't know if they perform the same functions as in a eukaryotic cell. But it would make sense.
2: Wow. But either way, I'm confused about something. If Loki, or an archaea like Loki, swallowed a bacteria that begat all eukaryotes, why did it do it? Was it hungry? Was it trying to eat the bacteria? And how did the bacteria end up in a symbiotic relationship rather than in digestive mush?
0: Right. Right, that yeah. is a conundrum. I assume it was hungry because I assume that everything happens. I like to hunger. imagine it <laughs> eating
1: because you need know, to. <laughs> because mm, it just makes such good sound effects. Uh, but mm, but that's, that's likely not it because you're right. If it had just been eating, it would have ended up sort of being digested. Right. So Buzz and David Baum of the University College London in the UK have an idea about this. They suspect that the archaeon was not attempting to swallow and consume the
0: bacterium, but was actually attempting to interact with the bacterium. In this theory, the archaea would have extended its body toward the bacteria, connecting to it and allowing material to be transferred between the two cells, a mutually beneficial relationship. If Baum's
1: theory is correct, over time the archaean would have extended more and more protrusions out and around the bacteria until it was completely enveloped. The two cells would have then fused and the bacteria became part of the internal cell structure of that archaean host, creating a new type of cell form, the eukaryotic cell.
0: Millions of years of evolution later, the intricacy and complexity of these eukaryotic cells allowed them to connect together and become complex multicellular beings like plants, animal, and fungi. And the genetic relic of the bacteria absorbed within the cell became the mitochondria that drives the energy production of the cells.
2: Wow. So we're all here and everything, like all of life on Earth practically is here, thanks to the bacteria and the archaea. They're like
0: The progenitors. Yeah, the bacteria, the archaea, and your mom. (laughs) My mom? Everyone's mom, whoever whoever, whoever we're talking about. But who's the mega mom? Who's mom (laughs) number one? That's what we should have called this whole episode, who's the mega mom? The
2: big mom.
0: (laughs) Okay, so it's possible that all three domains of life all share an even earlier common ancestor than this archaea. And this possible megamom is one that doesn't contain
1: even a single cell. And it is so strange that it has led biologists to consider that there may even be a fourth domain of life on top of the bacteria, the archaea, and the eukaryotes.
2: Wow. So now we get to talk about aliens?
1: I'm sorry. We're
2: really Uh... disappointing
0: you. It's a whole other.
1: Yeah, Uh... no aliens. But we do get to talk about something equally as cool because those creatures are viruses.
2: That's almost as good.
0: Yeah, uh, almost as alien. Pretty alien. Yeah. So, what led researchers to the theory that viruses preceded all other life is the discovery of a new and strange giant type of virus called the pithovirus.
2: So, okay. So, I'm imagining a, a giant virus like the Attack of the 50 Foot Virus. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's different from a regular virus because it's bigger. And like, how big is big?
1: Yeah. Oh, they're big. All right. They're big. I mean, as far as viruses go, they're not 50 feet big, uh, <laughs> but consider they're about 10 to 100 times larger than a traditional virus. You
0: probably still wouldn't know if one hit you in the face. Right. They're so. still yeah.
1: tiny <laughs> to us, uh, but large in comparison. Okay. So, And it's not just their size that distinguishes the giant viruses either.
0: Yeah. So traditional viruses are incredibly simple. They consist of only a chain of nucleic acids and a few proteins that form like a protective outer layer. It sort of looks like a sided die one might use in Dungeons and Dragons if one were to play Dungeons and Dragons.
1: And maybe the most striking characteristic of a traditional virus, and really the characteristic that fuels the debate on whether or not a virus is alive, is its inability to survive and replicate
0: independently. So traditional viruses can only reproduce by infecting another host cell and hijacking that cell's reproductive machinery. They don't carry a large variety of genes either. The smallest known virus consists of about four. But the giant
1: viruses, they possess some replication genes, and they can survive independently. And they consist of far more genes than a regular virus, all encompassed inside a body that can
0: dwarf even a bacterium. And crush a building, wow. I wish.
2: that's <laughs> big.
0: <laughs> the first giant virus, an amorphous blob found inside an amoeba, was discovered in 2013 by virologists Chantelle Abergele and Jean-Michael Claverie. It looked so strange and contained so many genes that it was almost overlooked as a bacteria. So Abigail and Clavery named it Mimivirus for
1: mimicking microvirus because the amoeba had seemed to mistake it for a
0: bacteria and eaten it since that first discovery, Abergele and Clavery had searched for and uncovered more variations of the giant virus, including, in 2013, the pithovirus, frozen in the Siberian Earth for over 30,000 years. How cool is that?
1: It is the, to date, largest virus ever discovered,
0: unless someone just discovered
1: one right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> it carries some 500 genes capable of carrying out a diverse range of complex functions, like making proteins and repairing DNA, which is pretty amazing stuff, considering that the usual virus can do very, very little on its own.
0: Before giants like pithovirus were discovered, traditional virology maintained that viruses appeared on the evolutionary scene after cellular life had already taken hold.
2: Well, that seems logical. I mean, since viruses hijack cellular machinery to survive and replicate themselves, they would have needed some kind of a host cell in order to exist at all.
1: Right. You would think so. And based on this theory, the first virus is, oh, they could have originated as some, you know, mutated cell that had lost its ability to replicate on its own, or maybe as some DNA or RNA that had escaped its cellular
0: confines. Who knows? Out on its own. But pithovirus's strikingly complex genetic sequence could be evidence that its viral ancestors evolved much earlier in Earth's history than we once thought. Eugene Koonin, a computational biologist at the National Institute of Health, theorizes that the earliest viruses actually came about long before the earliest cell. He speculates that back in the first era of life, when organic molecules were like floating around in the primordial soup, some free-floating strands of RNA got stunted, and they were suddenly unable to replicate themselves. So they would instead commandeer and swap genes with other passing strands of genetic information. They would do this again and again, continuing to obtain and discard genes along the way. Kunin's theory is that
1: this parasitic, stunted RNA, it never ended up evolving the ability to self-replicate like the other RNA did. And instead, it became the viruses that we know of today, which rely on host cells for all their functions
0: kind of makes me sad for viruses. Aww. Kunin goes on to suggest that perhaps RNA evolved to become fully enclosed within a cellular wall or membrane to protect itself from being hijacked by these parasitic viral ancestors.
2: So the first cell may owe its evolution to the parasitic viruses of old?
0: Yeah.
1: Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's all still theory, so we don't know for sure. But pay attention, because maybe in the next few decades, as we stumble upon more and more living relics and giant viruses, we'll end up uncovering super solid evidence that reveals viruses were indeed here first.
2: So what if you're really saying is that all of this is speculation, and in the final analysis, no one really
0: knows. Welcome to science, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> I will shake your hand and give you a certificate of uncertainty. <laughs> as you've uncovered as the one certainty in science is that nobody knows anything. And <laughs> well. Until someone invents a time machine and goes back four billion years, we have no idea. By the way, if anyone listening has invented a time machine and gone back four billion years, please call me and let me know. Thank you.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much to David Zimlis for being here with us today to talk about the
0: origins of life.
2: It has been my distinct pleasure, ladies. Thanks for having me on.
0: Oh my gosh, of course. We love having you here. It was super fun. (laughs) And as always, thank you to our X-Ray production team, our science editor, Sam Underwood, and your mom. Yeah, all of our moms. Thanks, moms. Thanks, our
1: moms. I Thanks, mean, mom. It doesn't matter where cell life began or the viruses. or what. We need moms. Everybody needs moms. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to re-listen to this or any of our other episodes, you can find Everything is Interesting on iTunes, Android, and Google, pretty much wherever any podcast is found.
0: And you can also find all of our episodes on our website, everythingisinteresting.org. For this episode, I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. We will be back in two weeks with more science,
1: right here on X-Ray FM, where radio is yours.